do so will face only the wrath of God. This is an essential part of the gospel message. Apart from this kind of warning of gospel of coming judgment, verse 43 has no meaning. The next verse, which speaks of forgiveness through his name, it has no meaning, no purpose, if there is not a coming judgment. There is a temptation, I think, to, to skip over the part of judgment when we think about the gospel, and certainly when we tell the gospel to other people. To focus and, and remain on the fact that Jesus died and that he rose again, and then just leave it at that. And the reason I think we do this is because that's a message that that even unbelievers can be comfortable with. When you tell unbelievers of the story of Jesus, that he, that he died on the cross, even tell of the, the miracles and the things that he did, the life that he lived, and say that he died on a cross, and that he rose again from the dead, and that's it? Believers will, uh, unbelievers can even look at that and say, hey, that's, that's a cool story. Yeah, I mean, that's, I like that. I don't necessarily believe it, but I don't know. That's, that's a cool story, and they're satisfied, right? You can leave the conversation there and they'll be happy. Kind of the, the you do your thing, I'll do mine sort of mentality. But the gospel doesn't give us that option to just leave it there, does it? The gospel calls us to respond to the gospel. It calls us to see and understand that the gospel matters. Forgiveness is needed because judgment is coming. Knowing that judgment is coming upon, upon all humanity and knowing what we know about ourselves and our wickedness should lead us to the same place that it led even Martin Luther. If you're familiar with the story of Martin Luther, you'll know that obviously Martin Luther is the one who nailed the 95 Thesis to the, to the church door at Wittenberg. That he started, he kicked off and was instrumental in the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. This season in which people were dying for the sake of the gospel and the gospel was was recaptured and 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 brought into the forefront a lot of this was was because of martin luther and the work that he did but the story of martin luther doesn't start with some outspoken some bold man who was who was a rebel who was looking to to tear down some system the story of martin luther starts with a man who was utterly and completely devastated by his own guilt a man who read the scriptures of how God is holy and how God is just and how he will not overlook sin and that wickedness and evil will be punished. And Martin Luther looked at his own life and said, what hope do I have? How could I ever stand before a holy God? What could I ever do to merit enough righteousness to stand in his presence? And he was left without hope. He was a man constant in his fasting, constant in his confession of sin to the priests, constant in his works of righteousness, and yet a man constant in his torment because of his guilt. Because none of those things could do anything to assuage him, to free him from the reality that he knew to be true, and that is that even in all that he was doing, he was still unholy. He was still a sinner, he was still corrupt. And that's where it led him. After also seeing all of the, the issues in the Roman Catholic Church after going to Rome, he was so challenged and encouraged and enlightened by the words of Paul that salvation comes by faith. 
the reality that the righteousness of Christ is counted to us, is imputed to us, credited to our account by faith and faith alone, was the thing that led Martin Luther to say what he said. Here I stand. I can do no other. What sparked the Protestant Reformation? It all started with Martin Luther, a man who understood rightly as we should, that there is a coming judgment and that apart from Christ and faith in him, we stand guilty and condemned. But then verse 43 and point number three, the gospel also means forgiveness, that we are not left there as every gospel message should do again. It doesn't just tell you of your guilt of a coming judgment and then say, see you later, good luck. Verse 43, Peter says, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That in Christ Jesus, and by belief in him, faith in him, trust in him, we have forgiveness of our sins. The judgment that we rightly deserve has now been placed upon Christ. The wrath that was ours, he has taken for us. For those who trust in him, forgiveness is ours. This is now where we come to the, the whole reason that the Lord has sent Peter to Cornelius, to preach the gospel to them so that their sins might be forgiven. Because forgiveness is what they need, and forgiveness is what we need. Not just forgiveness from one another. When we think of forgiveness, it's easy for us to think in those terms of how we might have wronged someone else, and, or they might have wronged us, and, and we need forgiveness. We need them to tell us uh, that they're sorry, or, or we need to tell them that we're sorry and, and, and make amends. It's far deeper and, and worse than that, our situation before God. And that there's nothing that we could bring or offer to him in order to be forgiven. But by Jesus' shed blood on the cross, we can have forgiveness of our sins, and only by his shed blood. When you look at Peter's words here, you realize just how simple the gospel is. Great theologian Charles Hodge said one time, the gospel is so simple that small children can understand it. And it is so profound that studies by the wisest theologians will never exhaust its riches. And this is true. That the gospel, as, as Peter has laid it out here, is simple. Christ came and lived died on the cross for our sins, was buried in the grave, rose again to new life. He is going to come again to judge the world. But if you believe in him, you will have forgiveness of your sins. That is the gospel message that Peter delivers. And it is a, a relatively simple gospel message and easy to understand, profound as it might be. So simple, as Charles Hodge says, that small children can understand it. And I would say that this is the case. As one who has a, a, some small children at my home, I can tell you I'm sometimes shocked and amazed at what it is that they can grasp and they can understand. Even though my oldest, Elijah, is only four years old, already the reality and the weight of, of heavy things, even things such as death itself, he feels the weight of those things. He, he can feel the, the, the harshness and the... the the wickedness and the darkness of even death itself. And even he in conversations expresses a, 
a desire, a, a hope for, for something, something to remedy this issue of sin. And while I can never know as I, as I declare the gospel, as I, as I tell Elijah and Nathan and Jim of the gospel, I can never know at, at four years old, two years old, how much they believe, how much they understand, how much of it is taking root. But one thing I do know is that what we see here is that A, the gospel message, message is simple. And as we're gonna see in just a moment, it is the Holy Spirit that works to open our eyes and bring about salvation through the gospel. And so, church family, one of the things I wanna, want us to, to consider is just an aside, as we think about the, the simplicity of the gospel, the nature of the gospel, we need to make sure that as parents, as Sunday school teachers, as adults in this church, those who know the gospel, that we're proclaiming it to our children. That we never, never give way to this idea that, well, you know, they'll just kind of get it by osmosis as we, you know, live a Christian life, as maybe they see us reading our Bible, as, as we take them to church, that it will just kind of happen, that we will just raise them as Christians, right? We would none probably say that, but sometimes we fall into that temptation that we don't need to evangelize to our children. And yet what I would say is that we do need to evangelize to our children. For indeed, no one comes and, and is born into Christianity because they were born in a Christian family. You can sprinkle water on their head if you would like, but that's not going to change their heart. Only the gospel, when it is heard and received and believed, can do that. So church family, parents, Sunday school teachers, anyone who is around children, share the gospel with your children. Don't think for a moment that it's too complicated that they can't understand. Declare to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need it. Finally, point number four, the gospel brings dramatic change. In verses 44 through 46, we see this moment, whereas Peter is preaching. Indeed, not only is Peter preaching, but he is interrupted in his preaching. The text says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. In the middle of Peter's sermon, as he has declared the gospel, he hasn't even concluded yet. He hasn't even called for them to repent and believe, but the gospel has done its work. The Holy Spirit has, has done his work. And before he was finished, the Lord began to move and people who were there began speaking in tongues and extolling God, demonstrating outwardly that the Holy Spirit had come upon them. Not only that the Holy Spirit had come, but that he had come in the same manner, that it was the same work and same Holy Spirit that had come all the way back in Acts chapter 2. This scene is a sort of Gentile Pentecost that we have here before us. Here the most shocking thing happened before the eyes of Peter and the other Jews who were with him. The Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles. This was a shock to these Jews who were here. That, that the Lord God was now extending his salvation, was now extending the invitation to come and be his and his grasp of people beyond just the Jews, but even to the Gentiles. Think about this for a second. The presence of God throughout Jewish history was confined to where? It was confined to the temple. 
Indeed, the inner part of the temple, this place where Gentiles, because we know they were dirty, they were unclean, and therefore they were excluded. That's where the presence of God throughout all of Jewish history had been found there in the tabernacle and in the temple, this place where Gentiles were excluded. Now, the presence of that very same God has made his dwelling place in the heart of these Gentiles. What a shock that would have been to their system. What an eye-opening thing. What could they have said here at this point? Well, Lord God, you can't come into their hearts. They're, they're Gentiles. They're dirty. They're unclean. Certainly, that might have been the reaction of Peter, right? Had the Lord not prepared his heart the way he had. But indeed, he had been, been given this vision. It had been made clear to him that the gospel was for all people. So that Peter then declared in verse 47... Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And the rhetorical answer to that question is no. They have received the gospel the same way we have. The gospel and the Holy Spirit has now been poured out upon the Gentiles. Bring water so that they can be baptized. So that they can now be identified both with us and with Christ. The dividing wall of hostility that had stood for generations like that was now gone. It had been broken down. From this point forward, there is no Jew and Gentile. There is only the people of God. Christians, the church, the bride of Christ. And what is the next step after salvation? I mean, you all know I'm a very committed Baptist, so we can't, can't ignore this. He says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Got to put in a plug for baptism here, right? What is the obvious and natural next step of obedience for believers who come to faith in Christ? It is baptism. It seems as though we shouldn't have to say this. And yet, over and over again, I'm surprised how believers in churches today undervalue and underplay baptism. It has become something today for many people, even for many Christians, it has become something that is just optional. That, I mean, you can do if you want to, if the Lord leads you to, to be baptized, but you know, if you don't, you know, no one's saved through baptism, right? So, you know, you don't have to be baptized to be saved. It's like we, we fall on one side of, the, of, of error or the other. Either we say that if you don't get baptized right away, you won't be regenerated, the Holy Spirit won't come, and that's false, right? We know that that's a lie. Or, once you've come to faith in Christ, it really doesn't matter if you get baptized, it's just kind of an optional thing, you know, if you want that, if the Lord leads you in that way. That's also a lie. What we see as the case for the New Testament church is that when salvation comes, baptism always follows this act of obedience, this seal and this sign that we are now unified not only with the church but also with Christ in the same kind of baptism with which he was baptized. This, as Paul writes, representing that just as Jesus was buried in the grave and raised from the dead, we too, as we go under the waters of baptism, are identified with him, having been buried with him in baptism, and raised to walk in newness of life. This is the, the, the natural and next step 
of obedience for all who come to faith in Christ, that being baptism. Cornelius, as well as his family, were now converted. They were converted from, as we learned previously, from mere God-fearers into true Christians and children of God. These people who, who in the eyes of many would have already, they, salvation is theirs, right? They fear the Lord. They, they follow Jewish practices and Jewish teaching. They might not be circumcised, but you know, they seem to be doing it right. There seems to be a love of God, even perhaps a zeal for God there, right? But it wasn't until the gospel of Jesus Christ was proclaimed to them by Peter that salvation had come, that they were now converted, changed from simply being God-fearers into actual followers of Christ. The world around us boasts all kinds of different avenues, different ways to be satisfied in life, different ways to find freedom, different ways maybe even to, to enter into some sort of heaven or paradise or whatever that might be. Some think it's the, the Buddhist way or, or the Hindu way, that there's all these different roads, right, that, that lead to heaven, that lead to salvation. But we know and we see here that's all baloney. That's all bogus. But that Christ is the single and sole and only means of salvation. It's by faith in him. The gospel remains as it always has been, the exclusive means by which people are saved. People are made freed from the wrath of God, cleansed from their sin, and counted worthy to enter into the kingdom. It is the gospel message exclusively. Did you know that we believe in an exclusive gospel? That only people who believe in Jesus are going to enter into heaven? Because that's what the Bible teaches. And as, as harsh as it sounds, to deny inclusivity, the gospel is by nature exclusive. It is only by the blood of Christ that our sins are forgiven and that we are made able to stand before a holy God. That this has never been made kind of more clear in an artistic way than, than by the song written back in 1876 by Robert Lowry, a song called Nothing But the Blood. There's an old hymn. You've probably heard it if you've grown up in churches. It's an old hymn, but just listen to the lyrics of this hymn and the truths revealed in it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Aren't these questions that the people, the world around us is wanting to know? For my part in this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not for good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Church family, let, unless you are cleansed by the blood of Jesus having been washed free of your sin, having Christ's righteousness granted to you and your sin upon him on the cross, then you do not have a place in heaven. It is Jesus' blood alone that can rightly cleanse us, that can rightly prepare us 
As the author of Hebrews says, it's not through the bulls of sheep and goats, but only through the blood of Christ that one time for all cleanses his people. Are you trusting in the blood of Christ today? Or is there something else in your life that you think you you have to, to sort of offer up as a means to be saved? You might even think of yourself as a God-fearer. You might not be an atheist. You believe in God. You believe even in in the Bible to a degree, that it's a good book, that it, it provides good morals, good teachings. But unless you trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross for your salvation, then you still remain dead in your sin. And I would encourage you, today is the day of salvation. You need not wait any longer than this morning here in this place today. His blood flows freely for all who would call upon him. It is a fountain that never runs dry. Trust in Christ for your salvation today. Turn from your sin. Turn from whatever things you might be clinging to and turn to Christ and trust in his blood for the forgiveness of your sins.